It's September 1962, and director Nicholas Ray is having a hard time on the set of his new movie, 55 Days at Peking. An epic picture with a big budget, big sets, and big stars set during the Boxer Rebellion in China. This is the forbidden city of Peking in the year 1900. year of the Boxer Uprising against the never-before-seen canvas of China with all its mystery and adventure, its savagery and barbarism, is told the epic saga of a handful of men and women of 11 nations who battled the armies of an empress while the world looked on and held its breath. 55 Days at Peking, starring Charlton Heston, Ava Gardner, David Niven. I admire Sir Arthur. He always gives me the feeling that God must be an Englishman. Also starring Flora Robson as the treacherous dowager... And while this is Nick Ray's second epic film in a row, after 1961's King of Kings, he is a bit of an odd fit for a picture like this. He's more known for stories about outsiders and loners. His movies are filled with emotion, not giant spectacle. But here he was, spending the summer of 1962 in Spain with 3,000 extras and Charlton Heston. While filming in Spain, Ray had a number of problems during this shoot. One of his stars, Ava Gardner, couldn't remember her lines and would walk off the set. David Niven hated the script so much he would refuse to report to set. And producer Samuel Bronston, who spent money as though he had an endless supply, argued with Ray constantly. And the fact that Ray was dealing with his own demons of gambling, drinking, and drugs probably didn't help. On September 11th, 1962, this all took its toll on Nick Ray. He suffered a heart attack. And while he would survive, his career wouldn't. 55 Days at Peking would finish with someone else at the helm and without his involvement. In fact, all of Hollywood would no longer have Nicholas Ray's involvement. He had clashed with studios and producers over the years so much that his services were no longer wanted. This despite the fact that Ray, since his debut in 1948 with They Live By Night, had made great pictures like In a Lonely Place, Bigger Than Life, and Rebel Without a Cause. But it didn't matter now. He had complained too much, walked off too many sets. He would never make another picture in Hollywood again. The pictures were done with Nick Ray. But Nick Ray wasn't done with the pictures. Not yet. In the early 1970s, Nicholas Ray took a teaching job with Harper College in Binghamton, New York, and used the opportunity to launch another picture. One he'd never fully finish. My name is Dan Delgado. And in this episode, we're taking a look at the strange journey a Hollywood legend made to get at least one more film in the can. Welcome to the industry, presented by Movie Maker. It's not an easy task to understand someone like Nicholas Ray. So here's some basic facts to help you out. He was born in 1911 in Wisconsin. He graduated second to last in his high school in 1929. In the 1930s, he was an assistant to famed architect Frank Lloyd Wright. During World War II, he was making propaganda radio shows with John Houseman. His first job in Hollywood was assisting Elia Kazan while he made his first picture, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. 
Ray's own debut would be shortly thereafter. He made They Live By Night in 1947 with Houseman Producing, though it wouldn't hit theaters in the U.S. until 1949 due to RKO Pictures being in a state of chaos after Howard Hughes took over the studio. Once released, though, They Live By Night died a quick box office death, but raised enough eyebrows in Hollywood and is now considered to be a classic. After viewing it, Humphrey Bogart hired Nick Ray to direct his next picture, Knock on Any Door. Here's where we get into the cinema of Nicholas Ray. Nicholas Ray was an extraordinary film director whose primary career in Hollywood was extremely brief. He basically made movies from 1947 to 1963. On his last two pictures, he was the second highest paid director in the world. But at that point, his career collapsed. In the interim, uh, uh, like his avatar, the star James Dean, he flamed out very quickly. But he was a very incandescent filmmaker who really pioneered both psychological depth and visual kineticism at the same time in his films. They're formally very daring. They're very penetrating. They're highly emotional. He wanted to deeply understand people and to find formal ideas that were expressive of those inner states. So the way he worked with the camera and the way he worked with actors were very synchronous. He uh, He was interested in getting below the surfaces into dramatizing and visualizing inner lives. Have you got all that? That explanation comes courtesy of this guy. My name is Myron Meisel. I've worked in practically every job in in the film business imaginable besides an actor. And Myron has done it all in the industry. Uh, Basically, I've made uh, very good documentaries and rather lousy uh, narrative features. I've also been both a uh, film critic and a theater critic over many years, and a uh, dedicated supporter and follower of Nicholas Ray since I was a teenager. One of the many things Myron has done is a documentary about Nicholas Ray, released in 1975, called I'm a Stranger Here Myself. The very first day of shooting, very early, within the first hour to hour and a half, Nick looked plaintively in my eyes. How much of it was genuine and how much of it is play acting, you could never tell with him. Uh, I'm not sure he could tell, but he he grabbed my forearm with both his hands, squeezed it, and said, Myron, you got to set the scene for me. And I said, okay, I can do that. And from then on, he related to me as a filmmaker and he as the subject and partially an actor enacting his own role. And uh, we had a very good relationship and it got very, very good results. And when it comes to Nicholas Ray, perhaps it was Jean-Luc Godard who said it best. You know, there's a famous Godard quote, which would probably be obscure to most contemporary viewers, but I'm going to, rather than translate it, I'm going to explicate it. Godard talked about how previously uh, film, great film directors had drawn in their movies, from literature, from theater, from music, from dance, and all the other arts, 
But Nick Warey was really the first director to pioneer a complete fusion of all of these arts into something that could only be called cinema. I think Godard was very correct in that insight. Or the common way of quoting Godard is to simply say, cinema is Nicholas Ray. He came back to the U.S. in the late 60s. Just before then, he was living on the Isle of Silt off the German coast. Nick at this time had been fascinated by all of the protests going on in the U.S. in the late 60s and wanted to make a movie about the Chicago 7 conspiracy trial. This is when he was contacted by a couple of American filmmakers. They had a movie that they wanted to make and had been suggested to get Nick Ray to direct. So they did. And so they found my father on silt pretty much destitute and my father agreed to come back to the state He'd been in, living in Europe since my parents went there in 57. So my dad came back to the States with these two filmmakers and landed in Washington, D.C. It was like some mobilization, a big, big protest, one of the major big protests. And he ran around with a camera and just was loving all the chaos um, and the political unrest and went to Chicago, and these people who were paying his way thought that he was making, shooting film with their film in mind, but really what he was doing was taking their money to go and shoot his own film. And that is coming from... My name is Nika Ray. I'm the daughter of film director Nicholas Ray. I recently published my memoir biography Ray by Ray a daughter's take on the legend of Nicholas Ray published by Three Rooms Press as for the Chicago 7 movie put it in the category of things that never happened Nick hung around Chicago for a while though trying to get it off the ground Roger Ebert met with my dad in Chicago to talk about my dad making this movie about the uh, Chicago conspiracy trials and went and saw my dad at his apartment and the only thing in the apartment was you know a mattress and a little refrigerator filled with beer and a projector nick also found himself hanging out with dennis hopper while hopper was cutting his film the last movie that didn't last though as nick amassed a large enough phone bill around thirty thousand dollars to have hopper want to get rid of him so hopper helped nick find his way to the world of teaching and then in 1971, Nicholas Ray arrives at Harper College at Binghamton University in Binghamton, New York. First is a simple question. How would I pronounce your name? Gotheim. Gotheim. I got... Okay, got it. Larry Gotheim. Right. Gotheim. And there's no sir. It's just Gotheim. That is Larry Gotheim. I think I have that right. And Larry is not only an avant-garde filmmaker but he's also the man who started the film program at Harper College in the 1960s. In 1971, he's running the film department, which also has acclaimed experimental filmmaker Ken Jacobs on staff. It's then that Larry sees an interesting footnote in a magazine. There was a footnote in which he said that Nick had been at loose ends also, well, didn't go into more detail that I learned pretty soon. So anyway, I said to Ken, you know, hey, what about Nick Ray? And 
both then we both were ignited by this idea of bringing somebody like him into an experimental department. Larry and Ken Jacobs both love the idea of having the acclaimed Nicholas Ray in their film program. Honestly, who wouldn't? The whole idea that I had that we all then started to share was that he would be freed from all of the Hollywood control. I mean, he was increasingly being a problematic figure in Hollywood. He came to Binghamton for a week. You know, it was like a big event, and he was really, it was very exciting. And so the administration was also willing to consider him. And he came to Binghamton in the late spring. And so he um, stayed with us. I was living in a kind of old farm thing that was close to Binghamton, but it was a kind of rustic area. That was like a center of uh, a lot of the film activity. You know, students would be there all the time. Visiting filmmakers would stay there. So anyway, he came to live with us for that summer. That, of course, was the closest relationship that I had with him. And it was very, it was very close. And just because now Nick is going to start working for a college, that doesn't mean his vices aren't going to come with him. He had these gigantic visions. Although he had no money, um, <laughs> he, was, he was a big dreamer of big visions that were partly drug-related. I mean, when he was staying with us, you know, he was taking drugs, but he was managing it very well. Like, I would stand in the kitchen with him, and we would be drinking and talking late, and, and it was, like, really a, a very great kind of situation. And then he would go upstairs and take his drugs, but it wasn't a kind of interference with whatever we were doing, except that now, thinking about it, I think that he was kind of led... I mean, I admire this, actually. I mean, he was led to these grandiose visions... And when Nicholas Ray starts his class in the fall of 1971, he's not interested in teaching in some conventional way. He really didn't like uh, lecturing. He wanted to teach by doing, and that is uh, pretty central in our in my understanding of his uh, method. And in fact, that was his method. You can't really teach, you know, by talking about films. You've got to go out and, and do it. This is Richard Bach, though everyone I spoke to called him Richie. He was one of Nick's students at Harper College. He started us off explaining to us that we were going to make a film and it would be uh, where we would uh, rotate positions in uh, camera, acting, set design, gaffer, camera, and we would rotate the position so each person would have uh, you know, a chance to work different aspects of a set, of a, of a narrative film set. I think the first thing that we did he wrote a scene in which he comes to a doorway on the university campus and he knocks on the door or somebody, some students knock on the door and it's almost like a dreamlike scene where he comes out and, you know, asks who's knocking and, you know, as he glances out the door, there's a hearse that comes up with somebody in the bit. He actually hired a, uh, you know, a, a real Cadillac hearse for the scene. And I think this had to do something with the premonition of his own death. I think that was part of the intent that he had, was that he was foreseeing his own demise. And he came up to a uh, university and was teaching, teaching us to make a film that was somewhat uh, autobiographical. 
The film they started working on was written by Nick and the students themselves. First called The Gun Under My Pillow, a reference to Sal Mineo's character in Rebel Without a Cause, it would later be changed to the title We Can't Go Home Again. I mean, Nick wrote scenes that came out of our relationships with him and with each other and our backgrounds and, and what we experienced in life up to that point. And Nick encouraged students to write, you know, write personally. I wrote scenes and then I wrote a preface for a scene. And in my preface, I wrote what I wanted the scene to mean. And Nick said, your preface was better than the scenes you wrote. So he used that instead, you know, for scenes we filmed. This is Tom Farrell. My name is Tom Farrell. I was a student of Nicholas Ray. And it didn't take long for Nick's classes to turn into a feature film production. Just about day one, I remember him saying, the only way to teach film is by making a film. And he said, we're going to make a film. And he said that very early on, you know, at right at the beginning. So uh, if it wasn't that day, I mean, it was when days that we set up a, a shooting schedule. So right away, it was pretty quick. Nick combined all his classes into one film unit, and that unit mainly met at night. Uh, students had various classes during the day, so Mostly we filmed at nighttime because that's when everybody was free. They didn't have classes. And and filming was Nick's class. And gradually we stayed, you know, we started working night and then some of the filming we did turned into all-night sessions. You know, we'd stay up all night. And even when students had classes the next morning, but usually we did work at night. I mean, we didn't... We didn't film every night, but we filmed whenever equipment was available and Nick had an idea of what we were filming. And if you're not familiar with it, you may be wondering, what is We Can't Go Home Again about? Now, one thing I did want to bring up was one of the scenes that I was in where the students, and this might make some sense to you, when the students meet Nick for the first time. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, you're all naming his movies at him. Wait, did you That's do? right. We're all naming his, we're all, yes. we're all cross-examining Nick. Yes. And uh, did you make Savage Innocence? Did you make, you know, Johnny Guitar, etc.? He had me roll in, just like wearing a red shirt, just like James Dean did one time when they were making Rebel Without a Cause, when they were doing an improvisation. Nick opened the door of a cottage that he was living in, and he rolled in backwards, just like, I didn't film, so it was a kind of a nod to James Dean. Not that I compare myself to James Dean, but it, it, that's where it came out. And I roll in, and I, you know, after everybody's asking him, what, uh, you know, did you make that film? I say to him, then what the hell are you doing here, man? And he's taken aback by that. And I think that's, you know, again, part of the autobiographical nature of the film. And, you know, the central, the central character that I always felt was Nick Ray himself. It was a film about us and the period of withdrawal, but I think Nick was making an autobiographical attempt here for this film. And for all of Nick's students, working on We Can't Go Home Again started out as a really exciting project to be a part of. It was an adventure, you know, to uh, have your kind of the main actors in the film. I think really enjoyed it. Nick would write scenes. He would uh, write scenes based on his conversations with us and based on his understanding of who we were. I mean... You know, he was 65 years old, and we were like 22 or 23. We really didn't know all that much, but I think Nick had a very deep understanding of people 
Tom Farrell is a case in point where, uh, you know, Tom shaves off his beard after leaving the demonstrations of the 60s. And, you know, he shaves off his beard, which is symbolic of having a good look at who he was after having this kind of beard, which was emblematic of protest, I guess. So in part, there's an autobiographical subtext to it for Nick and for his students. But it was also very much an experimental film. My dad was a genius. And what he wanted to do with that film was he wanted to break apart the rectangular frame. You know, he studied with Frank Lloyd Wright, and Frank Lloyd Wright used to always say he wanted to, like, break open the box structure of a house. And I feel like when my dad was making We Can't Go Home Again, he was trying to go back to his roots in a way, and and he was trying to break apart the rectangular frame of film the way that Frank Lloyd Wright talked about breaking apart the box structure of a house. And while the students were excited to work with Nick... I was a cinema major, and I was entering my senior year, so I was taking all film courses anyhow, and, and knowing he was coming... And director would rebel without a cause. I knew I could learn a lot from him, and it turned out to be true. There was a problem brewing behind the scenes with the staff at Harper College. First, there was an issue of Nick and fellow professor Ken Jacobs basically soaking up all of the available resources. There started to be these separate worlds in his teaching and Ken's teaching is that both of them were, I don't know how to put it because I don't want to say, they were very self-absorbed and self-centered so that each of them, when they would gather a like coterie of students around them and I, I was still and I was for a long time after that chair of the department which I eventually got to really hate being in that position because this was also a period when I was actually doing my early films that are now the ones that are most known, but they had much more colorful personalities. And there were issues about the use of the uh, department budget and equipment. So Ken was, in his teaching, he was less interested in the filmmaking part of it. He liked to be the one you know, lecturing and dealing with the film, whatever you call it, the art of cinema thing. But he would be demanding, you know, renting uh, more films than was in the budget, you know, buying stuff. And Nick was using every piece of equipment that we had. And so both of those things were sort of taking the thing away from the students. I mean, and so I was... I had my own group of students also, but some of many of the students were involved with the three of us. I had to figure out how to moderate because some of the budget, like for film materials, there wasn't any to give the students film. They had to buy their own film and stuff. And, and even with the equipment, you know, we only had like a couple of Bolexes and whatever, so that it wasn't that we had massive resources, but everything that they were using, either it was money or equipment, was no longer available to the students for their own projects. Then Nick and Ken Jacobs' relationship blossomed into a full-on rivalry, with Larry Gottheim, Harper's film department chair, stuck in the middle. Now, what started to happen also was that because some of the students 
each of, each of them was particularly jealous of the students who had become involved with the other one. So the students, I mean, it was stimulating for them, and um, but you know, it was a tough thing because they had to go carefully to do all the different parts of the program, and many of them did. I was also tired of having to moderate this thing, you know, because I felt like I, I, I was there actually as a film artist, and that was the center of what I wanted to do. Not, I mean, it was exciting in the beginning to start the program and, you know, be, it seemed like all part of a big creative project. But what was happening was that the conflict between Nick and Ken became really, really ugly. For Nick and his students, the filming continued, even after the school year was over. In May, at the end of the uh, spring semester, a lot of students graduated, including myself. I graduated with a degree in cinema. And then Nick decided we're going to continue filming, so... He invited me to live with him and some other students at his house away from campus, about 15 miles away from the campus. So we filmed during that summer. That was the summer of 1972. And as the film kept going, the film class started to get smaller and smaller. We started out with about 45 or 50 students all together. He combined all his classes into a filmmaking production unit. After a time, some people be- grew disenchanted and, uh, you know, didn't come anymore. I mean, there was a nucleus of people who stayed with them no matter what, you know, like around 20 people or so. But that the group of 45 or 50 students was whittled down to about 20 or 25 because some people lost interest in him after a while because uh, uh, we became acquainted with him. It manifested itself that Nick was an alcoholic after a couple of months and indulged in drugs. I mean, we thought he was cool like the rest of us, you know, smoking pot and drinking and staying up all night. But he was he was undisciplined in a way. While Nick kept on filming into the fall 1972 semester, things between him and Ken Jacobs weren't getting any better. That's when Larry Gottheim decided to take a sabbatical, in part to get away from all of the conflict going on between Ken and Nick. It was exciting in the beginning to start the program and you know be it seemed like all part of a big creative project, but after a while, the reality of how to manage that thing was but I had to continue for many, many, many years until I finally left. But what was happening was that the conflict between Nick and Ken became really, really ugly. I had a chance to take uh, a sabbatical. There's a kind of deal in the university where if you teach consecutively for a certain amount of time, then you get, if you have a good project, you get a semester off with pay, but, but you didn't have to teach. So I had a sabbatical, and I think that Ken was in charge of the program, and I went to Florida where I was, like, editing my film Horizons. And considering that Larry was the one doing all the peacekeeping at the time, that meant things between Nick and Ken Jacobs only got worse. Their conflict, I I, I didn't even want to be involved in it, but their conflict was really very, very ugly, and eventually uh, Nick left 
I, I don't know. Anyway, he left uh, while he still had another year to go in his contract. Okay, I'm I'm going to read you something that's on the Nick Ray Wikipedia page, and you could tell, and I just want your opinion on it, okay? Cause, okay. Because it involves you. Oh, uh-huh. All right, it says here, the improvisational nature of producing We Can't Go Home Again placed Ray in conflict with colleagues such as Ken Jacobs and Larry Gottheim in the university's New American Cinema-Oriented Film Department, and his contract at Bingham was not renewed in the spring of 1973. Is is that an accurate statement? No. I mean, I hate to be listed like that. There was the whole university. I mean, it was a little bit scandalous within the university. I think he dropped some drugs somewhere. And so, I mean, the administration was aware of the drug thing. And, of course, that's not good for the university in the sense that I was representing the university being chairman of the department, but I never had anything at all to do. In fact, I would try to moderate the thing with Ken. Uh, Also, the circumstances of Nick's leaving was never clear to me. I mean, the whole subject was sort of, I didn't want to touch, I didn't want to even find out about it. So I was never sure whether, you know, Nick left because he, he was didn't want to be in that environment anymore, which I could understand. So in other words, I never really knew and don't know to this day whether he was fired or, or, or just left. But just because Nicholas Ray left Harper College, that didn't mean he was done with the movie. In a way, he was just starting. Nick was really excited about the work he'd been doing with his students. So much so that not only was he looking to get theatrical distribution for We Can't Go Home Again, but he wanted it entered in the 1973 Cannes Film Festival. But finishing the film at Harper College was not going to happen. So Nick took his movie and headed west, and took a few of his students with him. Nick went west after we had finished shooting and the end of the semester was over uh, in Harper after two years of this, or one and a half years of shooting this film day and night for a year and a half. So I was one of the four people that came across the country in a a drive-away Cadillac. We had a um, thing back then, I don't know if they still have them, where you drive somebody's car across country. So we loaded up a Cadillac with all the film from Harper, Binghamton, and drove it across country without stopping. We had one stop in Denver, Colorado, where the shock absorbers gave out because the car was so weighed down with film We had to stop there to get the car fixed. Eventually, we made it to Hollywood. That's where the real work began. Nicholas Ray and his students piled into a room at the Chateau Marmont in Hollywood. It was the same room Nick was staying in when he worked on Rebel Without a Cause. And then, he and his students started the tremendous task of editing this picture. Which you have to understand, We Can't Go Home Again is not a normal picture. This film had to be not only, you know, shot, it had to be developed and Nick got you know the film stock developed 35 millimeter film stock I mean he was shooting thousands of feet of film on this stage and truthfully I mean Nick was broke at the time (laughs) he had all these places I mean you know the Chateau Marmont you know I think he still owes money for that uh, that stay there I mean and Glen Glen Sound we went there and he was there all night and I remember the uh, technicians, you know, the, not the technician, but the sound engineers saying, okay, man, we're on, 
we're on golden time now, which means like twice time. And then we went on to double golden time, which I think was two and a half times the going rate for sound engineers. And we had four or five sound engineers mixing this quarter-inch tape to marry to the 35-millimeter negative. So we had all this stuff going on. I mean, this was extremely expensive. You know, I'm not, I, I don't think Nick paid them. I mean, he was a rebel, all right. You know, the, the most important thing was to, to make films, and he would do what he had to do in order to make it happen. He was he was a dedicated guy and, uh, you know, obsessive about it. And he really wanted to get to con with this film, I can tell you. He wanted them to see it. And it was with that other camera filming in 35-millimeter film stock that would capture all of the strands being projected. It gives We Can't Go Home Again sort of a mosaic look. Yeah, that was kind of crazy because Nick was also trying to raise money so we could go to Cannes. He didn't have money, and he needed money to finish this post-production work, and and he had benefits at the bungalow, and uh, all these, some celebrities came there. I wasn't there at the time, but I heard that Gregory Peck was one of the people who came over, and uh, he hid all his famous friends from money, you know, like Gene Kelly gave him some money, and John Helson, of course, and... Yulia Kazan gave him some money. And after a few months of nonstop editing, Nicholas Ray headed off to the Cannes Film Festival. In May 1973, when we were getting ready for Cannes, and we finally threw the film together somehow, we didn't even finish it. Nick took the print to Cannes, and he wasn't, he wasn't really prepared for it. I, I wasn't there, so I couldn't tell you, but I'm told that Sterling Hayden made an appearance when Nick screened the film at the Cannes Film Festival in May 1973. I'm told it was kind of crazy, and a lot of people were puzzled and didn't know what to make of it, and I guess some people walked out, a lot of people, and but I wasn't there then, so I, this is what uh, people have told me. The movie was essentially unfinished, and the audiences at the Cannes Film Festival aren't exactly known for their understanding. Only one of his students made the trip. Leslie Levinson was there when it had a less-than-ideal premiere. Our film was uh, not so well-received, so... Nick was in good shape. He was in bad shape. Really bad shape. So it wasn't so good. Because I was young, and he was older. I, I didn't really want to take care of him, and I, I didn't really have any money, and... It was rough, but eventually uh, I went to uh, Amsterdam, and he he came there too because we were working with uh, somebody, uh, Max. What's, what the hell is Max's last name? And we were working on the film, and it was wonderful. It was exciting, but um, that didn't work out. So he, he left. And then when he left Europe, finally, I mean, I was the last one to work with him, if you want to know the truth, because we were working in Europe together in Max's studio. Then I think he tried to get other people, or Susan tried to get other people to work on the film through the years, and I wasn't part of that. I had to move on. I had to get get away, live my life. You see, Nicholas Ray didn't just go to the Cannes Film Festival and then come home. He stayed in Europe after the Cannes Film Festival. He went to he went to Paris, of course, to try to raise money, and he even tried to get money from. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truffaut and and from Paris he went to Amsterdam and and then wound up making 
you know, a, a short film, a kind of pornographic film. Okay, let me explain this. Nick contributed a 12-minute short film called The Janitor to a collection of films called <sighs> Wet Dreams. Ray had run up a number of bills and needed some quick cash. The janitor was the solution to this problem. And it's more perverse than it is actual porn, but still. All this time, Nick was still filming things for We Can't Go Home Again. He filmed new scenes with Leslie Levinson in Amsterdam, then came back to the U.S. and filmed some more. She returned to New York around, I'm guessing, September 1973. When he returned at that time, he was still... He was discouraged about the movie, and he was drinking more and more, and for the next couple of years, he drank a hell of a lot. In January of 1974, Myron Meisel visited the We Can't Go Home Again set in upstate New York to shoot footage for his documentary about Nick. It was a very oddball enterprise. Uh, you know, Nick was very charismatic uh, and also uh, reasonably messed up. So it was a very odd, guru-like situation with acolytes, but it was all benign in the sense that it truly was a cooperative enterprise to which they were all seriously dedicated. So I didn't know what to make of what they were shooting. I have to tell you, at the time I was there, they didn't know yet either, and neither did Nick. But Nick had a good eye and, a, you know, a very good filmmaking head. And I know he was recalibrating everything as he went along, which frankly is what I was doing with respect to our film at the same time. Nick continued on. He went back to the West Coast to continue to edit the film. I heard that he was on the West Coast. I was living in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, and I had heard that Nick was come, came back, and uh, I met him at the... Uh, Pacific Film Archives, and uh, he wanted to shoot some more. We actually crashed in a loft in San Francisco, and we went and shot some more scenes, one of which I was in. We also went to American Zoetrope. We were literally sleeping under the pool table at the American Zoetrope, and we were sort of vagabonds at that time. And uh, Nick was sort of a vagabond himself, to tell you the truth. But even though Nick kept working on the movie, it wasn't getting any better. While they were working at Zoetrope, Francis Ford Coppola's studio, editor Walter Murch thought Nick was a homeless guy Coppola had taken in. I mean, I remember him screening the film for Walter Murch at uh, Zoetrope, and I sat right next to Walter Murch during the screening. And Walter, I heard him say, this is a mess. And when I heard that, that was my... That was my ticket out of working on the film. I, uh, I left right after that. And even though Richie was out and Tom was out, Nick kept going and going, editing and editing. I found out in doing all the research for my book, I found out that before he came home, that he was in San Francisco and he was working on We Can't Go Home Again. He had had all the reels of the film shipped out to him. Tom Luddy took him in. Tom Luddy was running the Pacific Film Archives at that time. Had met my dad in New York at a at a party after the New York Film Festival. And 
decided to bring my dad out to Berkeley to do a retrospective of, of my dad's films and have my dad talk about his films. And so my dad arrived and shortly thereafter all these cans of film arrived and Tom Luddy got Francis Ford Coppola to agree to let my dad use one of the editing suites at Zoetrope where um, they were editing the conversation. So my dad was allowed to use the editing suite overnight, but that didn't go so well. My dad was making a mess of things. So then Tom Luddy connected my dad with a group of young filmmakers that had a collective called Cinema Manifest, and they had a lost space in the tenderloin and my dad went to go live there and he was too much of a disaster so those kids threw him out and my dad ended up in some sort of sewing factory clothing factory and from there he came home so that was the person that came home and at this time as nika said nick decided to go home now you have to keep in mind that at this time Nick is married to his fourth wife, Susan Ray. So when I say he went home, it was the home of his third wife and Nika's mom, Betty Utley. At first, I was really excited. Um, I didn't know that he was coming. My mom kept it a secret uh, from us because she didn't want to tell us that he was coming home and then him not arrive at the airport like he said he was going to. So when he came home, when he first walked through the door, it was like, oh, my God, my savior has arrived because, you know, but in reality, he, you know, was a drug addict. And like the next day, his drug dealer showed up and and it was heartbreaking. It was really um, confusing And probably not too surprising, Nick's stay at home doesn't last very long. When he came home to stay with us, my mom had to kick him out of the apartment. And she found him through a friend of hers, uh, editing room in a post-production facility in East Hollywood. So my mom took me to visit him there one day. And he was editing the movie. And I... It was on a, you know, uh, on a flatbed. So, you know how on uh, flatbeds they have the little cameras on the side, you know, the little film screen on the side there. And so I was watching him play the film and it just didn't really make any sense to me. And my mom remembered, I'll quote from my book, my mom wrote, he pretty much lived in that studio which was a relief to me because his body wasn't in the house at the studio working on we can't go home again he was like Gepetto. the more i looked at the footage the more confusing it was i said what is the story what is the beginning the end do you have a story he insisted he did and so nick just kept on editing it i interviewed this film collector named gene stavis who was at the bleecker street theater's in New York, it was a famous theater, and in the basement of this theater, there was some sort of collective. I can't remember the name, but my dad ended up talking them into him, letting him live and edit there, and Gene 
Davis told me how, like, my dad would be, like, cutting picture to sound, and but the picture wasn't matching the sound, and he would forget where he was. And then he would appear on screen, and Davis would say, like, well, that doesn't make sense how are they going to know who you are? And he's like, well, they're going to know I'm the director of Rebel Without a Cause. Like, everything seemed to come back to Rebel Without a Cause in a way, like, when he was trying to explain things to people. But I don't know, like, I just heard stories after stories after stories of people who would watch him cut that film over and over and over again. And he'd occasionally hold screenings of the work in progress to raise money to complete it. The reaction was always the same, even from director Vim Vendors, whose work was heavily influenced by Nicholas Ray. Well, a lot of people were freaked out because it it was incoherent and it was filled with it had a lot of fury in it and and passion and and I guess some silliness. He had screened the film for Vim. Vim thought the film was a mess and it was amateurish. He didn't know what to make of it. I mean, a lot of people were buzz- puzzled by what Nick was doing. and Because Nick was, well, Nick was a broken down man. He was uh, in poor health and he was, uh, psychologically, he wasn't of a sound mind. The most complete cut Nick finished was in 1976. It was a 63-minute assembly cut meant to show potential backers. According to Susan Ray, Although they didn't have all the film with them at the time, this version did include scenes shot after the canned version was edited, and those who saw it felt it had a sturdier narrative structure. It's also in 1976 that Nick checked himself into a hospital to detox. He gave up drinking and joined AA. Well, he didn't want me going when he was revealing, telling his own uh, story. You know, I was forbidden from going there when he was going to reveal himself. And it, because some people are drop-dead honest when they're telling their own stories about their drinking. Uh, and But Nick didn't want me there when he was giving his own confession. I should have snuck in so I could hear what he had to say, but I didn't. In 1977, he successfully returned to teaching, this time at the Lee Strasberg Institute and at NYU, where he had future filmmaker Jim Jarmusch as an assistant. Nick also had a bit of a comeback on film, courtesy of Vim Vendors, who cast Nick in a supporting role in his 1977 film, The American Friend. So Vim tried to help Nick and offered to make this documentary, which became Lightning Over Water. Lightning Over Water, also known as Nick's film, would be Nicholas Ray's final film. A documentary with Vim and Nick and Tom Farrell It essentially chronicles Nick's final months of life, suffering from lung cancer. He died on June 16, 1979. Lightning Over Water was released the next year. In 2011, the 100th anniversary of Nicholas Ray's birth, a new cut of We Can't Go Home Again was put together by Nick's widow, Susan Ray, who heads the Nicholas Ray Foundation. We Can't Go Home Again finally had a premiere in New York and also did a number of film festivals. And it got a few positive reviews as well. The Boston Globe, for example, loved it, saying that Nick was decades ahead of his time. One of the uh, little trademarks of Nick's style is he would always cut on a movement. 
so uh, it gave a certain kinetic impulse for every transition from each shot to the next. You can see a lot of that operating and uh, trying to expand the uh, scope of its possibilities and we can't go home again. How much he succeeded or failed is well, greatly open to debate and disagreement. I feel that is something that Nick wouldn't mind. He would like the controversy. He would like the difference of opinion. On the other hand, I'm sure he'd never be satisfied, <laughs> which is one reason the film never never reached a state that was truly finished. I must admit, I never, I never saw the film after it was uh, reconstructed by Susan. I didn't want to see it anymore because I wanted to remember those years as an experience instead of the film itself was not a success, and so many people told me they they couldn't make heads or tails of it. I mean, frankly, the movie turned a lot of people off, and I, I realized that it was a giant mess of a home movie, and it couldn't, it never cohered, you know? It was incoherent, and no one could make any sense of it, so I never saw that film, and and neither did I see Susan's documentary in which she interviewed some of the students. I never saw that film, so um, I wasn't there when the film played in the New York Film Festival. When the New York premiere happened, a number of his former students were on hand. For Leslie Levinson, though, it was not an ideal time. Yeah, but I had just been diagnosed with cancer. It wasn't the best time of my life, so it was a really bad time, actually. It was not the greatest time for me to experience that. And then my kids were very young, and they saw me in the movie, and they were so embarrassed and shamed, and they hated it. So it wasn't good. It was not good. That was a shit time. It was bad. Uh, so I, I couldn't, I didn't enjoy it. And I thought, uh, uh, you know, somebody came over to me, I won't say who, and said, boy, did he uh, exploit you. Boy, oh boy, you know, he treated you like trash. and didn't make me feel so good. And that cut of We Can't Go Home Again is the only cut that's out there to my knowledge. You can find it on DVD or stream it in a few places. But this cut doesn't use all of the footage that was shot. Can you tell that there's a story in there at all? Because really there's not. And then at the end, we shot a lot of scenes. And I have, we shot scenes. We shot footage that really, I think, um, put a coda on the film. And I would have loved that to have been in the film. We shot in Europe a lot of stuff. And it's not there. So maybe if you speak to somebody, you can ask uh, that somebody, her, where it is, and uh, maybe uh, it'll show up. I did reach out to the Nicholas Ray Foundation to speak with Susan Ray, but there was no response. Since the days of working on We Can't Go Home Again, Nicholas Ray undoubtedly had a major impact on his students. It was an immense experience. I mean, I've spent my life making movies since then. You know, Nick, Nick always called being a filmmaker is an adventure. And that's kind of what it's been for me since I've been with it. Nick instilled in us, uh, you know, a passion for the medium, dedication, and a commitment to craft. He understood acting intimately. That was very important to me. I followed his direction. I mean, I, I went for the adventure and helped found a theater company in San Francisco called Stage Group. In fact, Nick came back west. We had him lecture for the opening of the, of the theater. 
Richard Bach has worked steadily in the industry since he left the We Can't Go Home Again production. And since then, I've been working in film since the theater days. I went down to Hollywood and I worked as a film editor, sound editor, camera and producer for 30 years, I guess. I worked at Paramount, Goldwyn, Universal, ILM, Skywalker. I even worked for MTV for three years as an editor on one of the first reality shows. I'm even working now in my old age. I'm working uh, making a, a series of films uh, in the midst of the pandemic here on uh, anger and addiction. So I was very much influenced by Nicholas Ray. Tom Farrell remained close to Nick after he left the We Can't Go Home Again production. He's also popped up in a number of Vin Vendors movies along the way. But he still hasn't been able to shake the experience of working with Nicholas Ray out of his system. Nick was a very complicated person, and so I can't say that I understood him, but he had moments of brilliance about him that I I wrote down quotes that Nick would say, and uh, he's haunted me all these years, more than 40 years after his death, and I never understood him, but I admired the great gift he had, and even I went to visit Ilya Kazan and John Houseman at different times and they both considered Nick a, a great talent but that he squandered it on drugs and alcohol and he was he was so complex you know he had vices he had, he was a gambler and uh, his sexuality was mixed up he was a real mess Leslie Levinson has appeared on stage and in a couple of movies but hasn't had quite the career she hoped for. Truthfully, uh, I always loved him, but I uh, was hoping that I would... Uh, he thought I was really talented, and yet I never... I tried and tried in my own way to work as an actress, and I none of the doors were open for me. And I think it was partially because uh, of somebody whose name I won't mention, and also because of me, and also because of him. But I... I I'm very disappointed that I didn't have a career as an artist because he really thought I was talented, but maybe he was wrong. So he must have been wrong. I didn't really. I worked here and there. I worked in theater and I worked in film, but uh, nothing major. So I, I was really, in a way, uh, you know, he uh, promised me a rose garden and didn't deliver. So on that, on that level, uh, I was very upset and bitter for many years, but he wasn't capable of delivering then. He was. Very sick, mentally and physically. Nicholas Ray loved to work with and mentor young people. He spent plenty of his time doing that. But there was also an unseen cost to that. Here was a man who was unable to be with his children and had no interest in his children. And all these students that I talked to during this time, at least one time told me he was like a father to them and I'm sure he was it was probably a lot easier for my dad to be around teenagers and young adults who weren't holding him accountable these people are telling you he was like a father to them but he was your father how did that make you feel to hear that yeah you know, at first, like when I first started to do the research for Ray by Ray, and they would tell me that he was like a father, I was like, oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> oh, I get it, you know? And then when I saw a real rough 
version of We Can't Go Home Again. It was like the first time that I really realized what my dad was doing with these students. And I like just juxtaposed like what was happening in my life at that time. You know, it was just kind of like the first time I really saw my dad drinking and and looking like I saw him when he came home but you know in 1974 but you know I think a lot of the painful things um, that happened during those few weeks I blocked out and when I saw we can't go home again I remembered I started to remember things so then that's when started to kind of shift from oh that's great he was like a father to you to like wait you know he was a father to um he was my father he was not your father he was my father and nicholas ray himself never let this movie go even as he found work on other projects afterwards he still worked on it and worked on it editing it right up until his final days Like, I spoke to people who, in the film community, who felt pretty strongly that he just kept working on it to have something to do, to give himself a purpose. That he never meant to finish it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry, presented by Movie Maker. Visit moviemaker.com for more great podcasts, articles, and information about movies. If you love movies, want to make them, or are a movie maker yourself, there's something for you at moviemaker.com. There's also a great newsletter that you can sign up for. Seriously, it's good. Special thanks to my guests, Myron Meisel, Richard Bach, Tom Farrell, Leslie Levinson, Larry Gutheim, and Nika Ray. Nika's memoir, Ray by Ray, is available now on Amazon.com or on ThreeRoomsPress.com. Links to Nika's book, I'm a Stranger Here Myself, the documentary Myron Meisel made with David Halpern about Nick, and additional sources used for this episode and anything else relevant that I can think of is available on my website, TheIndustryPodcast.com. There's also a documentary made by Susan Ray about the making of We Can't Go Home Again, It's called Don't Expect Too Much. You can find it if you look. It's out there. Tom Farrell, Richard Bach, Leslie Levinson, and Myron Meisel all appear in it. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever else you can leave a review. If you'd like to contact me, you can. You can email me directly. It's dan at moviemaker.com. I'm also on Twitter at theindustry13. Instagram at industry underscore podcast and Facebook at the industry pod. Yes, I am aware how silly it is to have different names for all of these different things. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with another story of the things that went on in the industry. <laughs>